I love this song. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Amen tonight. 377. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. One more chance on that last Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian, lift up your voice and sing. Eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ the King, the hope of all who seek Him, the help of all who find. None other is so loving, so good and kind. He lives, He lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. <clears throat> you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And one more, 291. If Jesus is actually living in your heart, then you're headed to higher ground. Amen. You're not going to stay where you are. Let's sing it out. 291. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand. By faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane than I have found, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. I want to live above the world, though Satan's darts at me are heard. For faith has caught the joyful sound, the song of saints on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand, by faith on heaven's table land. Higher plane than I have found, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. I want to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory bright, but still I pray to heaven I found. 
Lord, lead me on to higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for each one that is here tonight. And Lord, we just ask as we take this time to the study of your word, that Lord, you would give clearness of thought and speech tonight. But Lord, just as importantly, clearness of understanding and of heart. Lord, we pray that we would learn from your word not just so that we can gain knowledge, but so that we can know how to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And want to uh, thank all of you for praying as uh, we did, um, was able to meet on Tuesday uh, with Brother Seep Salam Dowdy. Is, is his name it's, uh, and uh, he is a native Moroccan he, um, we had a little miscommunication he is not a pastor and, uh, but he is looking to help someone who wants to start an Arabic speaking church and so uh, uh, Brother Franz and Brother Ted and I met with him I'll tell you what uh, he knows more about the Quran than probably any imam alive today uh, the things that he knows, uh, no imam would ever want to know. Uh, in fact, they're the reasons why he is no longer part of the religion of Islam. And it was kind of interesting. Uh, he said, uh, my, uh, my approach is I show them what's in the Quran. And when they find out what's really in the Quran, they will throw it away as a dirty, filthy book. And, and he told us a few things. And I wish he hadn't told us all he told us. But, I mean, uh, he's not kidding and uh, so uh, just pray about that it's going to be a very unusual situation um, he said uh, he would be willing to interpret and uh, uh, if we started anything right now I would actually end up being the pastor but uh, he would be my mouth because I can't speak Arabic uh, and so uh, just pray about that if you would because uh, we have literally tens of thousands of Arabic-speaking people all around us. And uh, they just honestly, you know, that's the thing I love about the Bible. Uh, the more I study the Bible, the more I love it. Uh, I go to the passages that, that some people go to, and they say, see, the Bible talks about bad things. It really doesn't. You've got to put it in its context. But, boy, I'll tell you what, you go to that Quran, and it says some really rotten. I mean, evil things. And, uh, and that's in the estimation of any, any honest person anyway. I, I couldn't even tell you from this pulpit the things he shared. I wouldn't. <laughs> and, and so uh, pray about that. Uh, I mean, my eyes were opened. I had no idea that there was anything like that in any book that was called religious. And uh, yet it's, it's there. It, it really is. It's, it's shocking, but it's there. And, and uh, so, uh, pray, pray about that. Continue to pray. He said he's going to come by for another visit in a couple of weeks, and, and uh, we'll be talking uh, with him and uh, just seeing 
what direction the Lord is going to take. And uh, a lot of unseen things, so just uh, just keep that in prayer if you would. Uh, we don't want to get ahead of the Lord. But if the Lord wants to open this door, we certainly want to, to walk through it. And um, uh, I, t I think I talked to most of the guys after the service. Uh, we're going to need about six guys with uh, good strong backs and weak minds. Uh, uh, we've got a piano that was donated to us, and uh, we need to get that thing downstairs. Uh, and so after the service, guys, if we could just borrow you for... Well, if we get six guys, it should take us about five, ten minutes to get it downstairs. It, it shouldn't take that long. And uh, please, if you have a bad back or any of that stuff, don't help. It, it is very heavy. Uh, but as long as you're not going to endanger yourself, we'll just uh, cart that thing downstairs after the service. And uh, also, don't forget, I think I have a few right here. Take some of these little flyers with you. We printed up about 16, 1,800 of them, and after Saturday, they really won't be very good to hand out. And uh, so uh, take some home with you. Uh, if you go to work via the subway, uh, just stop at your train station 15 minutes, half an hour before you normally would get on the train, and just hand them out. If you need assistance, let us know and we'll try to line up somebody to be there with you. And uh, we'll try to get it, get at a few train stations uh, different days this coming week and uh, pass out uh, these flyers. I'd like to just get them out and all they do is uh, have a little picture of the angels talking to the shepherds. And the verse from Luke says, "Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then under that it says, come and find what these shepherds found that night. And you can find that same Savior right here at Open Door Bible Baptist Church. Amen? That is the real message. And so grab a few of those and pass them out. All right, let's sing one more song, 415. Stand with me if you would, and then we'll get into our Bible study tonight. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarm. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. And blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarm, leaning, leaning, 
leaning on the everlasting arms. Amen. You may be seated. Can you believe it? We're going to start a new chapter tonight. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And we are going to take just a moment and tie Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 together. And we spent quite a bit of time in Hebrews chapter 6 simply because it describes. Hebrews was written somewhere around 60 A.D., 50, between 50 and 60 A.D. is our best guesstimate. And yet, uh, all of today's headlines are included in the book of Hebrews. It describes all the basis of all of the false religions, all of the attempts to earn salvation, and that's what Hebrews chapter 6 is all about. Uh, and it deals with those things. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 7, And we start out with one of the most mysterious personages in the Bible, Melchizedek. And uh, I remember when I was in Bible college, that was one of the great subjects. If you knew who Melchizedek was and could argue as to whether it was a Christophany or a Theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or, or an appearance of God himself or if uh, he was just a man and we would sit in the snack shop and argue back and forth on all of these things. And you know what I found out today? Uh, if we could have just garnered the heat and the energy expended, we could have probably ran the lights in New York City for at least one day. And that's about all the good that would have ever been accomplished. Uh, just a bunch of hot air. Uh, you know, people love to go to the Bible and find things that they don't know much about and that God purposefully doesn't tell us much about. And then they like to talk about those things because it makes us feel smart. And you know what it really is? Dumb. Uh Uh-oh. Peter, don't do that. The Bible starts, and I looked up every reference in the entire Scripture of Melchizedek. In fact, we'll cover every time Melchizedek, before you leave at 8.30 tonight, we will have covered every Scripture in the Bible that deals with Melchizedek. And so that tells you there are frightfully few mentions of this person called Melchizedek. And, uh, and there is a purpose for that. And we start here, and we're just going to start reading in actually verse 20 of chapter 6. It says, Whither the forerunner for us is entered, even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually." 
Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave tithes, gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may say, and as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to stop right there. And uh, if this is your first time in Hebrews chapter 7, you are probably saying, What in the world is going on here? And uh, what I want us to do is to just skip down here uh, sometimes it helps if we get the punchline before we go back and get all of the details before. And so I want you to actually skip down to verse 22, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. It says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now that is the goal of this chapter. That is the proof. That is the direction that this chapter is headed in, is the understanding that Jesus Christ did not gain our salvation through the law of God. Jesus gained our salvation by fulfilling the law. The law was a debt. The law is there, Galatians chapter 2, to teach us, to help us understand for all have what? Sin and come short of the glory of God. 
that debt of our sins, that breaking of God's law. If we did not have God's law, how would we know that we've broken it? I'm sure you've all heard the stories of driving through the little podunk town and there the sheriff is sitting behind the 15-mile-an-hour speed sign that happens to be all overgrown and covered with brushes. And, and some of you might think that that's just a joke that they put in television shows and things, but I could actually take you to the towns uh, just outside Washington, D.C., where I grew up, where they actually did those things. You'd be going down the highway toward Washington, D.C. The speed limit was 55 or 50 miles an hour, and all of a sudden it was 15. And if you didn't slow down, they were charging you like $25 a mile over the speed limit. So you could imagine uh, what would happen to you. You could end up in jail. You could end up losing your car. And, and uh, I mean, I was, as I was a young driver, I was warned that these things happened. Now, what kind of God would it be that was just like those dishonest sheriffs in those little towns outside the big city? That's why God gave us a law, amen? He gave us a law so that we could know and we could understand that no person ever lived has kept all of God's law, amen? And that's where this Melchizedek guy comes in. Let's go back to verse 1 of our chapter here. It says that he was the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now, we look at this idea of being the king of Salem and we say, well, it's actually, you go down to the end of verse 2 and it says, king of righteousness. After that also, king of Salem, which is king of peace. How many of you have ever heard of a city called Jerusalem? Jeru means city. Jerusalem is the city of peace. That is its name. That has always been its name. Ever since this guy Melchizedek was the king there. And if there is one city on the face of the earth where the whole world wants to be, what city is it? Jerusalem. Napoleon, he wanted Jerusalem. The Middle-aged popes all wanted to set up their kingdom in Jerusalem. They fought crusades. Hundreds of thousands of people died over the years of those crusades. Never once did the pope feel secure enough to set up his throne in the city of peace. We've had many people try to bring peace to the city of peace. There's a whole group of people today that say, all we need to do is murder all the Jews and then there'll be peace in Jerusalem. Um, let me ask you a question. Is there peace in Saudi Arabia today? Is there peace between all of the Arabs in Iraq today? Is there peace in Iran? 
Is there peace in any place where the Islamic people are in control? Absolutely not. Uh, somebody counted up the wars. I think right now we have 22 or 23 major wars going on in the earth on the face of our globe today. And, uh, and 19 of those 24 wars have to do with the Islamic faith. Interesting. A little bit of information, and yet if we give them Jerusalem, there'll be peace on earth, right? Liars. <laughs> Not going to work, is it? You know why? Because the city of peace belongs to the king of peace, amen? And who is the king of peace? It is Jesus Christ. Only through his power can you have Jews and Arabs and Gentiles and all races of all people sit together in the same place actually love and care about one another. Call that peace. Amen. That's what Jesus does. That's what this book called the Bible can do. It brings peace. And this Melchizedek was, by all accounts of the Scripture, a living man who lived in the days of Abraham and was actually the king of the city that we now know as Jerusalem. And if we'll go back to uh, the book of Genesis, and uh, well, we'll get there in a minute. Um, let's go to First Chronicles chapter 17. I don't want to get too, too far out of the outline tonight. There's so much that we can do. There was a promise made to, a, uh, to another man named David. Now, David was also a king in what city? Jerusalem. Amen? And um, look at the promise here. We're going to just start in verses 3 and 4. It says, And it came to pass that same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, Thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not build me an house to dwell in. Now, what had happened here was David had gotten in his heart the desire to build a permanent place to worship God. For literally hundreds of years at this point, uh, almost 500 years at this point, 400, no, about 430 years from the days of Moses got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, God had been worshipped at a place called the Tabernacle. Tent. A temporary dwelling. David now was the king and he established borders and Israel was now a country and it came into his heart to say, I live in a palace, our people are well established why cannot we build a permanent place to worship God? And he went to Nathan and he said, Nathan, this is what I want to do. And Nathan went to God and said, Is this what you want David to do? And Nathan came back and God said, You can't do it, David. You fought battles. You have blood on your hands. 
I'm not going to allow you as a warrior to build my temple because my temple is going to be in Jerusalem, the city of peace, and it's going to be a man of peace who has never fought in a battle, who never held a sword in anger, who never had to go against an enemy. He is going to build my temple. His name was Solomon. And God makes some promises here in, in, chapter, in this chapter, in verse 11, it says, And it shall come to pass, when thy days be expired, when David dies, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take away my mercy from him as I took it from him that was before thee. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. Now, these were the promises that were made to David. That there would be a king of David's seed that would reign forever. Now, we know history. Starting in about 612 B.C., there were three major sackings in, in, of the city of Jerusalem. The last was in 605 or 606. And it, and it all depends on whose calendar you use, amen. But uh, the year is not that absolutely important. The king was deposed. He was blinded. He was put in chains, and he died in a dungeon in Babylon. His name was Zedekiah. He was the last king as a descendant of David that has reigned in the city of Jerusalem. Now we say, what does this prophecy mean when God said, I will establish a kingdom forever? Well, we read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's Christmas time. Handel's Messiah, if you've ever heard that. Uh, they, this verse has been put to music and uh, I will save you all the trouble. I will not try to sing it. I'll just read it. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Look at this next one. The Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I challenge you today, those words have yet to be fulfilled. Amen. The Son has been given to us. We know Him as Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. And we'll get to this at the end of the chapter here. That's what it means when it says a better testament. 
He was, that's what it means when the Bible says He was the great sacrifice. That's what it means when it says that He can save us to the uttermost. That's what it means when it says that His job and His duty was a greater priesthood than that of Aaron and his sons who offered those bloody sacrifices all of those centuries on the altars in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel appeared to Mary and said, you're going to have a son. He said, your son is going to inherit the kingdom of his father, David. And how many of you remember the story when the Pharisees all gathered around Jesus just a few days before the crucifixion? Jesus had gone in after he ridden a little donkey through the city gate of Jerusalem and thrown out the money changers and the thieves and all of those people that were desecrating the temple. And they gathered around him as he taught and said, What authority do you do these things? And Jesus just put them absolutely to silence. He asked them a question, among others. He said, Who is the Messiah? The son of David was their immediate answer. And he says, well, how is he David's son if David calls him Lord? He said, well, wait, wait a minute. What? How can he be David's son? That would make him lesser than David, would it not? And yet David called him Lord, called him the Almighty called him Master. How does that work? Well, it's very simple. The Messiah was of the lineage of David, but he was God in the flesh, the true King of Peace, the true Prince of Peace. And in order for the Pharisees to understand and answer that question, they had to know who Jesus really was. And they weren't going to accept him as their Messiah. And that's why they just went and uh, did all kinds of other things. Turn with me to Psalm 110. And again, we've been here at Psalm 110. It has been quoted in Hebrews chapter 5 as it is talking about the priesthood of Jesus Christ because Psalm 110 is the place in the Bible where Christ's kingship, where His authority as king and where His duty as priest are brought together in one person. You see, the Jewish people who lived in Jesus' day had many strange and, uh, shall we say, strained conceptions of the Messiah. They understood the prophecies in the book of Isaiah where the lion shall lie down beside the lamb and, and there would be great peace on the earth. And they understood that there was coming a Jewish king of the son of David who would literally rule the entire earth. They also understood that 
there was going to be suffering involved. But they couldn't reconcile those two strange ideas in the same person. They also knew that there was a great prophet coming. And so they literally had Christ divided up into at least three different personalities. And so you'll see through the New Testament as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they'll say, Art thou the prophet that should come? They were talking about one of their ideas of the Messiah. Are you the king? Who do you make yourself to be? And they couldn't understand that all of that was wrapped up in one person that would literally be spread out over centuries, millennia of time. He would first come as the suffering Savior, the sacrifice for all mankind. He would first come as the priest. Only the sacrifice he would offer would be his own blood, his own self. He is coming as the king. We sing joy to the world usually around Christmas time. It's not really a Christmas song. It's a song that talks about when Christ comes to rule and reign. Then there will be joy to the world. You know what? There won't be any terrorist agents when Jesus is in charge. There won't be any of this stuff going on. There won't be any political parties. He will rule and reign over the entire earth. He will rule as the Prince of Peace from the city of peace. Amen. And this psalm right here says, The Lord said unto my Lord. This was a verse Jesus was quoting. How did David call him Lord? The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And the Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. That's the city of Jerusalem. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness. There's not been a government on the face of this earth that has had anything to do with the beauties of holiness. In fact, most politicians are exactly the opposite of the beauty of holiness, are they not? The depths of depravity would be more descriptive of the best politicians the world has produced, let alone the tyrants and the and uh, all of the other people that are out there. It says, From the womb of morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. It is talking about total and complete dominion there. The idea of drinking by the brook in the way. If you're in a battle scene, if you're in the midst of a battle, you don't stop and sit down beside the brook and take a nice long drink of water. Now do you? That might be the last thing you ever do. The idea that he was going to drink by the brook in the way was that his rule and his power would be complete. He could stop anywhere, anytime, and do what he wanted because his kingdom 
was total and complete. This passage puts together. It says he was the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God. These pictures are talking about Jesus Christ. Yet this Melchizedek was the king in Jerusalem. He was the priest of the Most High God. And uh, he did receive, it says, he met Abraham. Now, let's go to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to try to tie this thing up here. We're giving out a lot of information at this point. But here's the story that is alluded to. Genesis chapter 14. If you ever want to know what the Bible's talking about, read what the Bible says about what it's talking about. Amen. And uh, Genesis chapter 14, let me just give you the um, context here. There was this group of kings, uh, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, uh, and uh, they had their little uh, uh, group and confederation, and there was this other group of kings, Armathel, king of Shinar, which is modern-day Babylon, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chadalomer, king of Elam. You say, did these places really exist? Oh, yes, they've excavated Elam. Huge, ancient city. And uh, the other places they know of, and they sat there and, and they got into a war. And for 12 years, it says that they served Chedilomer and all this group. Finally, they rebelled against him, said, we're not going to pay taxes anymore. And so Chedilomer and Tidal and all of his guys came down and they fought against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and, the, and Zor, the cities of the plain. And guess who won? Chedilomer. They should have just paid the taxes, shouldn't they? And they captured Lot. He was in the city. Uh, of uh, Gomorrah, if you, I mean, in the city of Sodom, if you'll remember years before, Abraham said to, uh, to Lot, says, you pick the land. Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now he was living in it. He was taken captive along with the other people hostage, and they were just carrying them back to modern-day Iraq. And uh, if you want to know where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were, uh, there's been some geographical change. They believe that they have located the foundations of the city of Sodom at the bottom of the Dead Sea. And yet, the description the Bible gives before the destruction of that was like the Garden of Eden. And so there's there's been some change there in that area, just a little bit. And uh, so when Abraham heard... What was going on? He got all of his confederates together and his army together, and they went and chased these guys down, and they beat them. And they killed many of their soldiers. And they rescued all of the, the people that they had taken out of the cities of the Vale and rescued Lot and, and the possessions and the riches. And I mean, much like it happened in medieval days, the Vikings would come in and sack a city and kill everybody. That's what these people were doing. And Abraham went and rescued them. And he brought them back. And as he was coming back from the bottom of the Dead Sea, 
the king of Jerusalem comes out to meet him in this place called uh, Sheva or the valley of the kings, the king's dale. Is, the dale was a valley, the king's valley. And apparently the king of Sodom knew about this place. And apparently Abraham knew about this place. Now we could conjecture all night long about what was so important about this place. It's only mentioned one other time in Scripture. Absalom, while he was enjoying his short time as king, usurping his father the few months that he was king, built a statue to himself in this same valley. So there had to be some very important significance. The king of Sodom knew where Abraham was going to come after the battle. The king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek, knew where Abraham was going. And everybody meets at this preordained place called the King's Dale or Sheva. And as the king of Sodom sees Abraham bringing all of the spoils and all of the people and returning everybody, the Melchizedek walks up and it says he has bread and wine. He said, now what, what is that? I don't know. He probably, the simplest understanding would be, they were having a time to worship God and there is usually sacrifices and meals involved with that worship. Or it just simply could have been that he knew that's where people would come. Those that had been taken captive would be literally starving. They would not have been fed for several days. And he brought provision to take care of the people that were hungry. It's, it's that simple. Don't think that he had the Lord's Supper involved here. It just It's not there, okay? Uh, it's nice to think about, isn't it? I mean, how many of you, when you heard bread and wine, thought about the Lord's Supper? Uh, but... You, you just really can't go there. It's, it's not there. Um, the simplest understanding would be that he fed the people. And there would have been ample reason to do so. But as we look through here, as the king of Sodom is standing there trying to figure out what's his and what belongs to the king of Gomorrah and what belongs to the king of Zor... Abraham starts going through all the spoils of the war. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One for Melchizedek. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One for nine. One for Melchizedek. He took 10% of everything that he rescued and gave them all to Melchizedek. Now you could just see the king of Sodom going, he's given away all my stuff. No, you lost all your stuff, buddy. You fought the war. You lost the war. It all belonged to Abraham now, literally. And Abraham was going to take the tithes of the wickedest king on earth, the king of Sodom, and give them to the king of peace in Jerusalem. I love this story, don't you? God, God will get his tithe one way or the other. Amen? He took the riches of iniquity and gave them to the king of peace. 
and the king of Sodom comes up and says, verse 21, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. You know, the devil's always interested in souls, isn't he? That's what he's always wanting. He, he wants the souls. He knows he can get more money, but he's got to have the people. That's what he's really after. Look at Abraham's answer. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I, li I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamer. Let them take their portion. He says, I'm not taking anything from you, buddy. He says, because I don't want anyone to say that you had anything to do with my riches. Great lesson, amen. We don't want the riches of this world. They're not going to help you when you stand before God, amen. They're not going to, God's not going to be pleased with all of those things, but you, I want you to consider here, let's not get too far off track, the greatness of this person named Melchizedek. The Bible says that Abraham gave him tithes. And Abraham said, I've lifted up, I made a promise to God that I was not going to touch one thing that belonged to you. He said, God gave me the victory. That's why God gets the offering. He says, but I'm not taking anything because I don't want your dirty money. He said, now the guys that went with me and helped me, if they want something, that's their business. And so you can imagine this poor king of Sodom running around not knowing what to do. But this is who Melchizedek was. He was actually the king of the city of Jerusalem. His authority was great enough. His position as the priest of the Most High God was enough that when Abraham met him, he gave the offering that belonged to God to Melchizedek. He said, now where did Melchizedek come from? Well, glad you asked because the book of Hebrews tells us. And if you know what it says, you've got a smile on your face. If you don't, you'll think that I tricked you here. But uh, look at verse 3. It says, Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. So where did Melchizedek come from? We don't. No. And all God's people said? Now, if we don't know and God doesn't tell us, should we go and try to find out? No. Could you not let God take care of whoever Melchizedek came from? Wouldn't it be wonderful just to let that little bit of knowledge go untapped? I can't, I, I've read some really weird stuff for, for this lesson as people tried 
to talk about who Melchizedek really was. Now, somebody said, well, he doesn't have a father, he doesn't have a mother, therefore he has to be either Jesus Christ or an angel, right? Um, there's, it just says there's absolutely no record. Amen. The fact that he was a man, it, it says right here in verse 4, now consider how great this man was. So, according to the scriptures, Melchizedek was a man, but his genealogy has been sealed by God, both backwards and forwards. How many of you have been tempted to read the Da Vinci Code that talks about the supposed lineage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene? Somebody sent me an email a while back. It said, you can go to this website, and by pronouncing these certain words into the microphone of your computer, the website will analyze your genetic code and uh, will tell you whether you're a descendant of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Now, I had to write a response to this, just a little one. I, I just said, uh, you've got to be kidding. This is a joke, right? And then I repeated the little command, the little thing they said. And I said, uh, you probably need to go get your medications checked seriously. Uh, there's, there's something wrong here. And if you're not taking medication, please check into the nearest psychiatric hospital. You're in need of great help. And uh, if you need any assistance, please email me back and I'll try to help you. Of course, they never did. But, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff out there, my friend. It just means there's absolutely no record. There's no way we can trace because God wanted this man to be an example, a picture for you and I of Jesus Christ. Do we have to get any more complicated than that? Because if somebody could trace his heritage back, guess what? That idiot Brown would be writing a book the Melchizedek Code. And God said, you're not going to do it. Nah, 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 nah. I'm hiding all the information. And by the way, Mr. Brown's book on the Da Vinci Code is nothing but a fanciful weaving of lies and deceit. He, he, doesn't, he, he bases it on lies, the false gospel of Thomas, and then he only picks and chooses from the lies, which lies he wants to put in his book. He doesn't even put all the lies in the book because if they did, they would even the lies would disprove his lies. I mean, come on now. And, and God said, listen, I'm not going to let you play games with Melchizedek. I want him to be a picture of Jesus Christ. So there's no history because I want you to understand that this man was a great man he was chosen to illustrate and help us understand that God has a priesthood that is higher than that of the law. People get all wrapped up in the Ten Commandments. How many people said, I'm going to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments? 
I've yet to meet one that could even tell me the Ten Commandments. It's trying to get to heaven by trying to keep them. Next time somebody says, I'm going to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, just ask them if they could name them. I promise you they couldn't give you all ten. But before you do that, you'd better study and learn all ten, okay? And then if they're able to give you all ten, ask them if they know the 603 others that are in the Bible. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament law. The whole purpose of the law is to teach us that we cannot save ourselves. That's what the law is all about. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is not that under the law. It is above the law. And that's why God put this mysterious person, Melchizedek, in history so that we could understand that God does things God's way, not our way. Amen. That's why he leaves questions unanswered. Because he's God. He doesn't have to explain everything to you. Amen. But it does say that he, Jesus Christ, is able to save them to the uttermost. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law, but his priesthood is not of the law. His priesthood is before the law, and after the law, it is forever. When the price has been paid, there's nothing left for you to do. The Bible says all you must do is believe. We have so many people trying to work their way to heaven. Melchizedek, it says right here, and we'll get into this next week by God's grace. It says he received of Abraham in essence the, the father of the Levitical priesthood Abraham it was his uh, great grandchildren actually that founded the uh, priesthood and all of that Levi they literally paid tithes to Melchizedek showing that Melchizedek was a greater priest than they would ever be and that salvation is not in the things you do. It's in what? Jesus, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, has done. And all God's people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight, and Lord, we're wading through some difficult passages to be sure. We pray that would not step over the line of truth and keep things simple and honest. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to understand the truth of Melchizedek is to teach us that we can't get to heaven by the things that we do, by, by what Jesus has done. We ask you to work in our hearts and in our lives that we may live for you, that we would not allow ourselves to be bound by all of these things that people would like to hold up, that we would not waste our time trying to earn our way to heaven, but we would put a simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone.
We ask you to do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just take a moment. Uh, Joy.